All right, everyone, welcome back. Today we are talking with a doctor who is a Stanford Harvard grad, also from the Mayo Clinic, so classic underachiever. His name is Dr. Michael Turner. And what we're going to dive into today uh, is his experience healing long-haul COVID patients and the, the things that you've been asking and the things that you've been wanting to know we're going to dive into, and I can promise you by the end of this conversation, you're going to hear, well, why didn't I know this two years ago? This is exactly what I need to know. So first of all, welcome. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the opportunity, truly. I know you've been doing a lot of work in this regard. And I mean, in general, you help people with anti-aging, feeling their best, being at the best brain level, the brace heart, all of that, all of what we want out of life. But now you're having to apply it in this new context of post-COVID world, everybody suffering from long haul and wanting that goal, but also having this whole other burden they have to deal with. And how long has this been going on in your clinic? Yeah, well, I've been seeing it in my clinic now. I got involved right right around 2020, you know, right when things were starting. So several years into it now, um, you know, initially there were a lot of concerns about how do I prevent COVID? How do I strengthen my immune system? What can be done preventatively? I don't want to end up in the hospital. That was a lot of my initial consultation. And then it moved to, I'm actually having COVID or my family member is, what do we need to do right now to treat it? And then right. it moved towards long COVID, essentially. Uh, I'm still struggling with these symptoms. My COVID infection was five months ago. A lot of things got better, but I still don't have my sense of taste or smell. I'm still tired. I still can't you know, do the workouts I used to do, et cetera. So there's evolutions of that, that we've uh, been working very hard to try to help people with. I will have to commend to your readers, a certain organization called the FLCCC. If they have not heard of that, everyone needs to know about the FLCCC. It stands for Frontline COVID Critical Care Alliance. The background of this group is it was started by a group of ICU doctors in New York City back when COVID was sweeping through. Uh, if you may remember, it was you know on the news, there were bodies being carted in and out of nursing homes. It was mm. all very graphic, very dramatic. This was a group of ICU doctors who came together to essentially share knowledge and collaborate and publish best practices for how to treat COVID. And it has since grown, become a worldwide organization with teams of physicians and scientists, who essentially creating the Wikipedia of treating COVID. And they started off with just a hospital protocol, and now they have an outpatient protocol. They have a variety of different protocols, and they, they have national conferences. And a lot of what I have learned has been either through their conferences or through their protocols. They're tremendously effective. So I want to make sure your readers uh, understand that. No, that's amazing. Thank you for giving them that credit, mm -hmm. which is deserved because there was so much, so much gray. This happened so fast and we were trying to respond so fast. And then there's a conspiracy theories and then there's a the science and everybody battling like what's real and what's not real. What is misinformation? We don't even know even till today, you know? So, and, and, and that landscape, a bunch of clinicians trying to get together and nail down, here's the actual blueprint for dealing with this thing yeah. and trying to get people to listen. And I can imagine the struggle because I've been to these conferences and it's not easy. You hear what is the exact truth and you walk to the next room and you hear the exact opposite. And they're both equally deterministic about what they're believing, mm. you know, in the same, in the same conference. So I can imagine <laughs> what it takes to get there. Uh, and you've been doing this type of work for some time now, clinically educating, speaking about it. And now we're going to share how we feel 
given the current circumstances and things that people are struggling with post what we just went through globally, how people yeah. can thrive. You've been looking at something very specific uh, that nobody's sort of talking about, uh, but is very clear and obvious. And I'm going to jump straight to it, which is we're finding that one of the outcomes of people that have gone through this pandemic and have got hit once or twice or many, multiple times with COVID is erectile dysfunction, this major mm. wave. And people aren't putting the two together. They just feel whether it's coincidental, they happen to be at the right age or just like they think it's anxiety or stress. But you're saying there's a clear correlation between somebody who was uh, infected and sick and ill and the long tutorial, which is, you know, this long haul call it one of the clear outcomes is erectile dysfunction. So what's the, the connection there? Absolutely. I'm glad you bring that point up. Let's talk about it. To, to understand this, we have to understand two ideas. One is the spike protein, the SARS-CoV-2 right. spike protein. Yeah, I'm still kind of astounded. Sometimes I'll talk with patients and that phrase won't ring a bell. I'll say, what do you know about spike yeah. protein? Have you ever heard about that? It's like, it goes right over their head. So uh, if you imagine the coronavirus as an orb or a sphere, essentially, and then it has these little grappling hooks on the surface, which attach to your cells, typically the ACE2 receptors, typically in the lining of your blood vessels. And these little grappling hooks allow it to worm its way into the cell. Those grappling hooks are the so-called spike protein. Now, at first, we thought that the spike protein was just the way that COVID entered the cell. And then once COVID got in your cell, it did nasty things like, you know, take over your cell and destroy it and make more copies of itself. Granted, it does do that. However, we then learned that the spike protein itself is toxic. It's not just a way that COVID enters your cell. It's actually the main way that COVID causes problems. It's the spike proteins on the surface of the viral capsules. They're highly toxic. They're highly noxious to your body. They provoke a strong immune response. And when I'm talking to patients, I say, if you want to know what inflammation is, imagine you have a splinter in your hand. Okay, that redness, mm -hmm. that swelling, that's your immune system reacting to this little splinter that it realizes is foreign. It's mobilizing cells and it's trying to destroy that. And there's always a little bit of collateral damage of surrounding tissue as it does that process. And it's sore and it takes a little while. Well, imagine the spike proteins as microscopic splinters scattered throughout your vascular system, whether it's your penis, mm. your coronary arteries, your brain, it doesn't matter. Once that gets loose in your bloodstream, wherever that goes, it attracts an immune response, which causes inflammation. In medical terms, we use the phrase endothelial damage. And I don't know if that rings a bell, perhaps with, you know, for sure. Know, yeah. They, yeah. Yeah. Our listeners, um, anyone that's been tested, we, we look at the endothelium in terms of it's how robust it is. So the 9P21 gene locus will tell us, mm. do they have like this paper thin, highly prone to inflammation endothelium or more stainless steel resilient. And there is variable outcome because people have different hardware. Right? Yeah. And this is why they say, well, it doesn't actually, it doesn't equal that problem. And someone's saying, well, it's a really bad problem. Yeah, because you're designed different. But sorry, just to, to interrupt you, but keep going. But yes, for sure, there's this variability of what you have. But even if you have the best, you still weren't designed for what you're talking about. Correct. Correct. Right. So the spike protein is getting loose within your endothelium. It's creating an immune response. It creates in inflammation and damage to the endothelium. Besides that, the spike protein also promotes clotting. It directly promotes blood platelets to aggregate and form clots. In fact, one of the defining characteristics of long COVID is what we would call microclots, the persistence of microclots. Mm. So I don't know how familiar listeners are might be with that, but you know, if they look up long COVID and microclots, uh, you'll see a lot of information about that. There's some great research that's been done out of South Africa. The author's name is Pretorius, and mm. she she took 
a series of patients who had long COVID, and she was an expert in special imaging techniques for circulation and microclots, you know, prior to COVID. But when that launched, she figured it was, you know, opportune to study those patients. Short story, every single patient that had long COVID also had imaging findings of microclots without exception. So it seems to be a defining characteristics of long COVID. And the people who had COVID and moved forward, they did not. So it was very discriminatory. Uh, so we can say, therefore, <clears throat> if you have long COVID, you have microclots. If you have microclots, they're by definition in the small circulating arteries of your body, whether it's the penis, the coronary arteries, aka, you know, chest pains, uh, things like that, uh, other places, the kidneys, doesn't matter. And so, and the last point about the endothelium, as uh, you'd be very aware, the endothelium releases something called nitric oxide, which mm. is a molecule responsible for dilating the smooth muscle around the blood vessel. When the endothelium is damaged, it loses its ability to release nitric oxide. And for example, the rectile meds, Viagra, Tadalafil, et cetera, they all work by augmenting levels of nitric oxide. They help prolong the levels of nitric oxide that are released. However, if you're having very little nitric oxide released in the first place, the meds are only so helpful. So this is the story with, with spike protein. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's why Cialis is making claims about reducing cardiovascular disease because of, you know, that's not their outcome, but it's off-label benefit because of all the nitric oxide delivery. And even there, there's variability. The, the NOS3 gene, NOS3, determines your relationship with nitric oxide, nitric oxide and therefore vasodilation, et cetera, right? Yeah. And so um, it's, it's when you start to look at these pieces, that's why there's so much, well, I feel like this and I feel like this. It's same virus, Sure. Right. Same, same bug, but why do we have different outcomes? Because your body's doing different things with it. Mm. So that, that clotting that you're talking about, that micro clotting, is yeah. that why we're seeing women that are particularly claim, uh, talking about sort of uh, female hormone type issues that may be pointing at the hormones of the cycle or, but maybe is it just the, the clotting itself, which is the problem? Well, a few, there are a few problems. So you, you raise a good point. So the spike proteins directly cause blood clotting and that can affect any given organ system. And of course, if you have diminished blood flow, you can get organ system dysfunction and even cell death. Okay. So that could occur, for example, in the ovaries, understandably. Besides that though, the spike protein also is very structurally similar to many human proteins. And so there's a phenomenon called molecular mimicry and essentially the immune system has trouble distinguishing friend from foe, so to speak, because the spike protein is so structurally similar to other human proteins. So we know that it provokes a lot of autoimmune problems. And again, that could mm. settle. So for example, let's say the adrenal glands. Patient has long COVID and they're exhausted. And we wonder why. And we check their adrenal output and it's low. And then we check for the presence of antibodies against one of the adrenal proteins. And we see that they yeah. have positive antibodies. And they never had this, let's say, uh, at baseline before COVID. Right. What happened was the COVID virus stimulated an autoimmune problem uh, for being structurally similar to some of those adrenal proteins and the immune system is now reacting against it. So there can be autoimmune part of uh, destruction of any given hormone system, unfortunately. That, that's an eye opener because people don't realize that mimicking that, that's going on internally. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's clear. It's been documented, seen everywhere, but we're not addressing it. We're addressing the symptom and how people feel. So people are going in for anxiety and brain fog and hormone-related issues and cycle issues, and they're fixing those problems without fixing the underlying driver, which is going to keep fueling the problem. Correct. That, that's, that's a mimicry. So how do you actually go in and resolve that? 
Is it by eliminating spike protein from your system or what do you actually do? Uh, yes, sir. I would say two main ways. So to, as to spike protein, the first thing I do with anyone who has long COVID or, you know, even recovering, you know, from an, an acute episode is to clear, help their body clear spike protein. Again, just to emphasize this point, there was some research done at Harvard where they, they tried to define what creates a long COVID scenario versus a resolved COVID scenario. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in looking at those patients and in comparing the blood samples and all that, the persistence of spike protein was a defining characteristic of long COVID. So we know based on the two examples I just mentioned, if you have long COVID, there is microclotting and there's persistence of spike protein in your body research based at this point. Therefore, treatment aims at both of those two problems. As far as clearing mm -hmm. the spike protein, there are five main things that can be done to help clear your spike protein. And by the way, if your readers would like, I did a whole Substack article on this, which I'm glad to make available to you guys for future reference and reading and such. But some things that's, are natural and very helpful. And yeah. So vitamin C binds spike protein. Okay. Quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N, the so-called citrus bioflavonoid, structurally similar in concept to vitamin C, also directly binds spike protein. NAC, N-acetylcysteine, binds spike protein. Certain strains of CBD oil bind spike protein. There's a substance called natokinase, which is an enzyme that comes from the soybean plant. It's been used medicinally in Japan since the 80s. Phenomenal. It directly dissolves blood clots, but it also dissolves the spike protein. And finally, there's a medication, ivermectin, which is had a lot of notoriety, as you may know. One of the reasons ivermectin helps is because it binds spike protein. So that's where I start with patients. And then step two, I go down and address their microclotting and their endothelial health. So we usually mm. start aspirin to help thin the blood because, as I mentioned, spike protein is creating uh, so-called platelet aggregation, whereas aspirin is a uh, blood thinning agent as in basically uh, it you know, inhibits platelet aggregation, sort of reverses any uh, propensity towards aggregation. So we have aspirin. I always start them on natokinase because it directly dissolves blood clots. Um, and then we talk a little further about endothelial health. I usually start them on something to boost nitric oxide production like arginine or citrulline. We talk about beet, beetroot powder, as you may know, boost nitric oxide release, uh, spinach, boost nitric oxide release. And then there's even a supplement EGCG, uh, which mm. comes from the green, green tea leaf, uh, epigallocatechin gallate, EGCG. And this is interesting. It interferes with spike protein's ability to bind to the ACE2 receptor in the endothelium. So the, all those interventions are measured at uh, microclotting and endothelial health. And if it needs to go a little further, we actually sometimes do prescription strength uh, medications to thin the blood a little further. Uh, so these would be things like Plavix or uh, Eliquis, if you've heard of those phrases. So th this process, somebody's going through and taking on, say, the NAC and vitamin C, and they come up with a cocktail and quercetin. And we've heard a lot of people that when they get hit with a virus, they take quercetin at that time to recover quicker, right? And they feel like it really yeah. works for them. So what is this? The, is it is it highly variable, or what? What kind of time frame are people looking at to start feeling good? The brain fog starts to go away, and the energy comes back. Is it is it many months? Is it weeks? Uh it's. It's, it's a little bit in between, let's just say. And the duration of your symptoms does mean uh, that it's going to be a little longer to get you feeling back to your priest level of health. But as far as yeah. noting an uptrend and noting some improvement, that can happen within weeks. So if we start some people on 
you know, some of these products, they, they might come back in three, four weeks. I typically do four week follow ups. They'll say, oh, yeah, my brain fog's starting to clear. I'm starting to feel a little better mentally or my energy's lifting off. Absolutely. Four weeks is, is right around a nice time to, to note some some solid benefit. And those so the, the, everything you're talking about are sort of antioxidant detox, you know, sort of mechanisms. So what is suppose none of these things were happening? What is the body's natural mechanism to deal with spike protein? Is it like the glutathione pathway is an antioxidative process? What is the body doing knowing that this is a toxin? Is it just the yeah. immune response? It doesn't know what to do. Is or is there something going on to actually clear this toxin? Uh, so, to the best of my knowledge, it's just the typical immune response to something that recognizes as foreign. So, your immune system's involved. Your lymph system, you know, they're trying to your body's trying to clear this out of circulation. It gets segregated in lymph nodes and other areas, and then your body just sort of works away at dissolving the spike protein, yeah. either efficiently or inefficiently over a period of time. So that makes sense. So that this is why you're having this long haul because the body's responding only in the viral context, not in the toxic detox. For example, if I take in some heavy metals or I breathe in some chemicals, glutathione goes to work and starts binding, collecting, helping my liver detoxify. You know, yeah. um, if I'm running on a treadmill and I get into oxidative stress, antioxidation kicks in and my body starts to support that modality but it sounds like this is why we're having this big gap because unlike any other virus we're not it's a double-edged sword yes there's the virus which our body's responding to with an immune response but it's not responding to the capsule delivery method this little spike protein that's floating around everywhere as a toxin causing inflammation it's not part of our body's natural response so this is where we kind of have to supplement it's kind of like you have to take vitamin C because you don't get it from food. You have to take, you know, so the same thing with uh, this response, which is why I think there's, again, this question of variability keeps coming to mind because you hear so many people having different experiences. And one is because mm -hmm. a lot of people are doing those things. Some people mm -hmm. are taking their daily supplements and their detox protocol and their vitamin C. Yeah. And some people take absolutely nothing and they don't eat properly either. And they're not getting the micronutrients from the food either. And so they're having a much more adverse outcome from the toxin itself, not the virus. And that's where, we kind of have to separate these two things and let the body deal with the virus, but you have to step in and deal with the toxin. I agree. Um, there is a lot of variability, as you said, based on lifestyle factors, you know, diet, sleep. For example, I just talk about strength of the immune system as it relates to sleep quite often. It's a, it's a huge concept. I know you did a podcast earlier on sleep, which I looked at um, some great information there. But my point that I emphasize with patients is the strength of your immune system today is directly related to the quality of your sleep last night. Okay. Right. There is the, the feedback is that immediate. Right. Another way that I describe it is it's kind of like being hungry and eating. If you're hungry, you need to eat now. It doesn't matter that you ate yesterday or last week. If you're hungry, you need to eat now. And if you want to have a quality immune system, you need to have gotten sleep last night and you need to have certain nutritional elements as well, but especially the sleep. So pretty interesting. And so I always encourage if people are, they ask me, how do I strengthen my immune system? And we talk about certain supplements, granted, exercise, phenomenal. We can talk about why. But quality sleep is the first and most important thing I tell them. And I tell them, your body's fighting this infection mainly when you're asleep. It's not mainly when you're awake, right? In our minds, we're thinking, mm. oh, I'm fighting COVID 24-7. It's not quite like that. It's heavily loaded towards sleep. Just to throw out a concept, let's call it the 80-20 rule. Let's say 80% of your immune system getting serious about COVID happens when you're asleep. And that's because... 
obviously, intuitively, we understand there are certain restoration and replenishing activities that happen during sleep. But amongst them is your immune system. So your bone marrow is literally pumping out new white blood cells, new antibodies into circulation. There's a synthesis, a biosynthesis process that's happening within your cells if you have enough nutritional basis. And this is happening during sleep predominantly. That's when your immune system is replenishing with you know fresh ammunition to fight the next day's battle. Yeah, and to prove that to people, or you know, they don't to prove the concept of how um, how directly correlated is it? Like you said, it's it's literally screw up tonight, you screwed up today, right, or tomorrow. I know with my children, they're most likely to get sick and miss school on a Monday, because the weekend is when they stay up till midnight partying with their friends, right, and that's when they right. didn't sleep. And, and, and I, I tell the family, I tell grandma, I tell grandpa, you got to make sure they sleep on time because they're going to get sick if they don't. Yeah. And then they don't. And then on Monday, they miss school. So it's, it, and it's, and think about it, any parents out there, it's consistent. Monday, Tuesday, those are the days where kids are most likely to not show up because they're sick because the weekend is when they didn't sleep. Mm, mm, and you see fun. it over and over and over again. Hey guys, we've been hearing from a lot of people that there seems to be a second wind of cold and flu season and a lot of people are getting sick again. So we're going to do something about it. If you haven't heard of Breathe Easy, it's a product that we designed that specifically targets the immune system. It provides support to boost immunity no matter what the season brings. So there's things in there like NAC, zinc, vitamin C that act as potent antioxidants to support the immune function and reduce symptoms and respiratory illness if you take it. So we're going to get this out there so everybody can get back to what they're doing and get rid of their colds. So for this limited time during the season, we're going to bring it out there. Don't miss this deal. When you buy two bottles, one will be free. So go to the website and at checkout, you'll see that the second one is a gift from us. We want to make sure everyone and their families are armed. So go to the dnacompany.com forward slash products forward slash breathe. That's breathe with an E, B-R-E-A-T-H-E hyphen easy and add two Breathe Easy bottles to your cart and you'll see that the second one is free. A gift from us. So harness the power of your DNA, get optimal immunity, enjoy the season and good health. So going back to what we talked about earlier, yeah, because I think it's really cool that you're solving this problem in such a unique way, this erectile dysfunction problem that men are all of a sudden there's a skyrocket demand and, and need, but nobody's connecting the two. Mm. So what are you doing? Is it the stuff you're talking about, which is eliminate the spike protein? over time, things just get better? Or is there a direct thing that you're doing specifically for that problem? Well, I'd say there, there are four main points of emphasis when I would work with someone. The, 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 the latter three are sort of traditional approaches to ED, but they're no, nonetheless very helpful and effective. And the first one is you know specific towards COVID, right? So the first one, yeah. as mentioned, would be help that person clear spike protein out of their body. Just as another point of emphasis, they've done uh, biopsy studies and even post-mortem studies of penile tissue, and they've seen it filled with spike protein all along the vas vasculature within the penis, the actual body of the penis filled up with spike protein. We know this is a main, main problem. So clearing the body of spike protein is job number one. Beyond that, we'll go to some traditional methods of helping out with ED. The first thing I tell people to do is get their testosterone level checked. Okay. Testosterone mm -hmm. influences erectile function. Absolutely. One of the first things that happens when we get a guy on testosterone re replacement or naturally bring his levels up is he's like, he says, I'm having erections again in the morning. I haven't had this since I was like 25 years old. They'll say something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, morning erections is pathognomonic for adequate testosterone levels. So we check their levels, help them in that way. 
the third thing I do then gets into uh, diet and lifestyle interventions to help boost nitric oxide production. So we have, as I mentioned, uh, dietary sources of nitrates, typically your green leafy vegetables, imagine spinach, kale, etc. Also beets, beets, beetroot juice, beetroot powder is a big concept. I don't know if you are familiar, you know, with that, especially as regards nitric mm-hmm. oxide. I heard about it initially a few years ago. I think I read a New York Times uh, wellness article that was talking about Olympic athletes who were quote unquote doping with beetroot juice. Okay. Because yeah. it was, yep, it was proven to, you know, be shaving times off of their personal records. And of course is legal. And so all of these athletes were downing these shots of beetroot juice uh, just prior to com- competition. Well, with good reason, it boosts nitric oxide and of course, therefore better blood flow to any given organ under, uh, you know, conditions of stress and physiologic outputs going to improve your, your function, your oxygen delivery, your cycling of waste products, et cetera. So dietary sources of nitrates, getting their diet on point would kind of be point number three. And then point number four would be certain supplements that you can take that directly influence nitric oxide levels. I mentioned uh, citrulline or arginine. Um, So there there are some powders you can buy pretty readily available right off of Amazon, combination citrulline arginine powders. They're fantastic. This also helps with blood pressure, by the way. So if someone comes to me and says, my blood pressure is getting kind of high, I don't want to be on medications. The first thing I do is I link them to my favorite citrulline arginine powder on Amazon and say, take one scoop of this twice a day. Easy. Uh, Beyond that, uh, there are some supplements like uh, ginseng and then DHEA, which have been shown mm. to help with erectile function. And then interestingly, something called acetyl L-carnitine. Most people have not heard of that supplement, um, also abbreviated A-L-C-A-R, Alcar. It's one of my personal faves. It's sort of a second level knowledge hack, you know, trick up my sleeve towards helping people feel better and in my personal life. Acetyl L-carnitine is an amazing molecule. But as an example, there was a study done in Italy where they compared testosterone replacement to acetyl L-carnitine plus another form of carnitine. They gave them a mix on men who were, I think, like in greater than 60 and suffering from some signs and symptoms of testosterone deficiency. And then they came back at the conclusion of the study and said, how are you feeling? You know, how's your energy? How's your mental state? How are the erections? You know, tell me about your life, right? And the groups gave equivalent answers. Both benefited to the Mm. same degree, the same degree, which is pretty notable. So the acetyl L-carnitine as effective as testosterone medical replacement in that study. So yeah, you'll see a lot of um, fitness influencer types promoting it as like a pre-gym, mm. uh, almost like a pre-workout, like take yeah. this 20 minutes before you hit the gym and you're going to have a different outcome. Yeah. Uh, and there's there's brands that literally take away all the clinical usage and just label it as like a pre-workout because of mm. the, the value of it over time. And um, so now all of what you said, I know the question that everyone's thinking from listening to you, it's like, okay, I got COVID, I have spike protein, I got to clear it. Yeah. Uh, but didn't I get another dose from the vaccine? You know, and because it's also delivering a spike protein. So what have you seen in terms of, is this now become exponentially more problematic or is it just another layer of work to do? Like, what does it add up to? It is more problematic. Every, to your point, the, in my mind, as the vaccines were developed, the plot twist, the million dollar <laughs> plot twist, okay, was when we discovered that the spike protein is toxic. Right. And, and so when I first, I was reading all these articles about 
what's the mechanism of COVID? How does it cause problems? You know, we don't know. We're investigating it. Oh, look, it's the spike protein. The COVID spike protein is doing all the bad things I just mentioned. Then my first question was, well, is this the same spike protein that the virus, that the vaccine is creating in our bodies or how similar, how different is it? Like, tell me, we got to know the answer to this question, right? That is a very uh, insightful question for all of your listeners to ask. And the answer is, it's essentially the same. There are some small microscopic changes, but none of those changes are germane enough to take it out of the category of being problematic for your body. It is just Mm -hmm. as problematic for your body. You could even argue that this vaccine-induced spike protein is worse uh, because if you get a natural COVID infection, it's going to hit your nose or your mouth. It might circulate here locally. And if you have a strong immune response, you'll clear that up, right? So you might have Mm -hmm. nothing more than a bad sore throat and some sinus congestion. But when you inject the vaccine, that travels systemically through your body very quickly. Again, that was a plot twist in vaccine development. When it first came out, we were told, oh, it just stays localized in your deltoid muscle. We know that that is not true now. After the vaccine, those mRNA fragments and the spike protein that's released are known to circulate widely through your body. So to your original point, everyone should stay away from the spike protein at any exposure and burden of spike protein has a potential to damage your endothelium and cause problems. Now, if certain people feel for other health reasons that on balance, the risk benefit ratio to deal with the spike protein from a vaccine Mm -hmm. is worth the protection against additional COVID, that is fine. That's the decision for them to make with their healthcare provider. I'm not saying categorically nobody should get vaccinated, but I am saying it does introduce a spike protein burden that is not inconsequential. It can cause problems. And as your body's trying to clear one spike protein burden, whether it was from a previous injection or COVID, along comes another one. That's not a great health concept from that. Yeah. So now people are probably wanting to know, like dosage, when you say vitamin C, yeah. what does that mean? Is it 1,000, 5,000 milligrams? Like, what are they doing? Is it, are, you, are they just reading the label and going with it? Or is this like the updosing? Good question. I, I'm not sure about precise dosing to optimize the binding of the spike protein, let's just say. But as regards general health and wellness and uh, let's say acute COVID, we, or, or let's say prevention, we talk about 500 milligrams twice a day for general health and wellness okay. and prevention. Acute COVID, actually struggling with an active COVID infection or long COVID, we crank that up to 1,000 milligrams twice a day. Those are the best protocols yeah. that I've seen. And by the way, I like extended release formulations of vitamin C as well. If you just hit your body with 500 milligrams, right, it tends to overwhelm the absorptive capacity of your cells. You get some urinary loss. If you take extended release, you avoid that problem. So my default is to direct them to an extended release product. Yeah, that makes sense. A better utilization. You're getting more of it into your system. Yeah. And you're getting it more in the natural format because when you're eating food or you're doing whatever, you're not getting the way we take supplements. Here's my bucket of my morning dose. But your body, that's that's overwhelm. You know, it's, it's right. not meant to be delivered that way. So that makes a lot of sense. And I've been hearing there's been a lot of research on dandelion root and the extracts, you know, clearing spike protein very efficiently, mm. apparently. I don't, know if, I don't know if you've heard the same. I'd like to know more about that. I have not heard yet, but I'm open yeah. to, uh, to any. So there's a particular, yeah, so the actual root, dandelion root, it's a commonly available supplement, yeah. uh, but highly efficacious in terms of clearing spike protein. So there's research going on in the US and Europe uh, on, on a lot of stuff, obviously, yeah. right? But this is one that stands out where the efficacy seems to be really good. So anyone that thinks they may need it, go ahead and try it. Um, so yeah. now you're, so the picture is becoming a lot more clear on why people feel the way they feel and how you've been able to 
lay it out in such simplicity. It's this toxin, right, that is causing crazy inflammation that the body does not respond to that you need to then take charge of and respond to. So is this the same thing for everything else we're seeing? The brain fog? Is it the same thing for the, um, call it the lack of energy? Is it like, what is the mechanism? Why is it being triggered in different places and different people? Or is everybody getting all of that? They're just noticing one thing more than the other. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, good point. So for example, the brain fog is typically driven by endothelial damage. And the endothelium, as relates to the brain, we call the blood-brain barrier, but it's nothing more than, you know, a healthy endothelial barrier. But in right. the brain, that's the blood-brain barrier. So when that gets destroyed you, or damaged, you have, you know, loss of integrity of the blood-brain barrier. When that happens, you have things moving into the brain that don't belong there and that your immune system will react against. And so, again, you right. have essentially small little foci of inflammation in different parts of your brain. That will alter the brain biochemistry, and you can feel brain fog, sedation, you know, even mood changes or specific nerves can get affected. Let's use the example of loss of sense or taste of smell, right? What is that about, right? Yeah. Well, those are some of the cranial nerves that run right back here to your brain stem. And if those are affected by either COVID leaking into your brain itself or, uh, you know, the autoimmune response to some other thing that's leaked into your brain, then you've got some direct nerve damage. So the, the brain fog and some of the, what we would call central nervous system symptoms, are still very much tied in directly towards spike protein, damage of endothelial integrity, uh, et cetera. You mentioned fatigue. That has a lot of different components. We would use the word multifactorial within medicine. So the causality is, is there are several layers of that. So one aspect of fatigue is, for example, loss of hormonal function that relates to energy. So your mm. thyroid and your adrenal glands are the two glands that produce hormones that are most relating to energy production. If your thyroid or adrenals have been damaged, those hormones fall, your energy level falls. The other thing is we know that the, a SARS-CoV-2 infection directly damages your mitochondria. Right. Um, I have to refresh myself on all the mechanisms of that, but that is a fact. So your mitochondria suffer loss. They suffer damage. I think even at the genetic level, I think it gets into you know the fragility of mitochondrial DNA and some things that you understand very well but it sets back your mitochondria without a doubt for a while, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so, and not to mention fatigue is ultimately a sensation that's perceived by the brain. So again, if your brain is under inflammation or stress, your glands aren't putting out enough hormone and your mitochondria have been damaged as well. All of this input is integrated into your brain. Uh, and if you've had poor sleep, for example, or psychosocial reasons to be depressed, this is all integrated into your brain to a feeling of, malaise you know fatigue being morose you know hmm. yeah i know that that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. and and then the last frontier of all this i mean you got me thinking about all the cardiovascular concerns um when you talk about endothelium damage well first of all just to your point if we're saying that the blood brain barrier is getting damaged then people need to understand if you're thinking holistically, you really have to take care of your gut because if your gut is leaking and you have toxic substrates going directly into your bloodstream mm. without a healthy blood brain barrier to protect your brain from those things, the ability for them to cross that blood brain barrier, cause damage, inflammation, cognitive decline becomes exponential, mm. you know? So just a side note, you know, just from what you just heard from Dr. Turner, even more reason to really focus on your gut right now. Um, but going back to it, 
the same, you know, talking about endothelial, where do we see that the most, and where is it most implicit is cardiovascular health? And you see these athletes dropping dead on the field. You see young men with myocarditis, all this cardiovascular inflammation. Mm -hmm. So really what we're saying is that there's a toxin that is crazy, causing crazy inflammation to a very single cell membrane of your body. Like literally it's a layer of one cell that is not designed to cope with that kind of inflammation and toxicity. And then you add on top of that testosterone and adrenaline and the things that these young men are dealing with. And all of a sudden you get things like, you know, uh, cardiac arrest and guys dropping dead on the field. Mm -hmm. Have you, have you dealt with much of that or at least in terms, not, I'm not the guys dropping dead, obviously, but yeah. in terms of cardiac healing. I have, I've dealt with it to a fair degree. I'm not a cardiologist per se, but amongst general patients coming to me for their acute or long COVID or their post vaccine concerns. Yes. So a typical situation would be the person says, I have these persistent chest pains or my heart will race for no reason. I'll look down and my pulse yeah. will be 180 and all I'm doing is walking to the mailbox. Right. And I go to the emergency room and I keep being reassured that I'm fine. And I, they even gave me a follow up with a cardiologist and they did a bunch of tests. They did an echocardiogram. They did an EKG. You know, uh, they might have done even a cath coronary catheterization at some point if you have an older patient who is at high risk. Right. And all of this cardiac workup comes back normal. And at which point the medical provider has a decision and a choice, right? They can either dismiss the patient and say it's in their head, or they can be a little more open-minded and astute than that and say, we just don't understand. I believe you, Mrs. Jones, that your heart is having a problem. We just don't, we can't capture it right now with our traditional, you know, methodologies of looking at and understanding this. And that's at least a fair admission. And the reason is things that I mentioned, you know, there's no current available test that you're going to find in the cardiology department that looks for the presence of spike protein in your heart. It, it's that's not a thing. Yeah. Right. There's no currently available test that you're going to go get in the cardiology department that looks at the presence of microclotting in your circulation. That's not a thing. Now, to your point about endothelium, there are some specialized tests that can be done to assess endothelial function. Unfortunately, these aren't widespread. This is typically more in like a cardiovascular, you know, treatment center or maybe even a cardiovascular research lab. But there are some ways that you can assess endothelial function. Uh, right. So th that that's a possibility. But basically, usually these patients come, they've had no answers so far in their mind, and they're a little confused. Uh, and they're like, I know I'm suffering from something, but is nobody can figure this out. And at which point I give yeah. them a discussion of spike protein and microclots and endothelium and circulation and all that. And they get a lot better. They get a lot better. I've had people whose chest pains have disappeared absolutely after five, six weeks of treatment. Yes. Yeah, that's amazing because I know people that are months, months into their pain. Um, mm -hmm. They're not listening to me personally about what they need to actually do about it. Uh, but I, I understand that if they were to know what's really happening and go on the right protocol that within weeks it could be resolved. Yeah. There's people out there, uh, we see them, that are confusing all of this, the feeling that you get with what they now call anxiety, right? It's this like chest pain, ongoing, chronic, bothersome, something ticking in the background, yeah. you know, and then, and they think of it as this is my anxiousness, this is my anxiety, and it's getting worse. And mm -hmm. they're treating it as that. And the clinician is agreeing with them that this is, this sounds like anxiety. And that's what it's being treated as when really it's endothelial, endothelial inflammation that leads to the same sort of sensorial response, right? And it's being mistreated because they, they also probably are suffering from some level of, mm -hmm. you know, cognitive inflammation and brain inflammation and are feeling off and put these two together. That's what they chalk it up as and they end up treating it wrong and it never gets fixed. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, another thing for people that are listening just to look out for 
uh, this chronic, my chest feels like kind of heavy and I have anxiety. Well, maybe it's something else, right? Um, and the, have you done any work in terms of understanding the correlation with adrenaline and what we're seeing with athletes? Because we're, I've, I've heard yeah. that there's, you know, actual physical scarring, like literal visible damage to the, you know, cardiac hardware. And the combination of that with an adrenal rush, like, you know, people that, for example, die mm-hmm. in their sleep from 3 to 6 a.m., which is when your peak adrenaline is, right? When yeah. you're pumping it and creating it. Right. Um, are we seeing that at all clinically or is anyone talking about that? People are talking about it. Uh, people are talking about it. It's definitely a concern, you know, when you have high levels of uh, what we call catecholamines or these adrenal hormones. They fire up your sympathetic nervous system quite a lot, which fires up your heart rate and the contractility of your heart. But it's also a stress on your heart, let's just say, right? So, you you know, overall, uh, to be in a high level of adrenaline as far as your cardiovascular system is a negative concept. If you want to go exercise and get your heart rate up for a period of time, that's fine, but not, uh, not, not on a prolonged level and definitely not as part of your sort of just daily life. I'll use a, a quick example of dying of a broken heart. I remember I learned about this in medical school a while back. You know, there's this concept of grandma died of a broken heart, you know, after she lost her son or something, right? And we thought that was just a folk concept because, you know, we didn't have an explanation for it. Turns out there's an explanation for it. You can read about it. um, And it's thought to be essentially prolonged surge of some of these catecholamines, as we call them, Mm. cause some damage and remodeling to the heart. And you end up with either heart failure or electrical abnormalities. Because of the psychological state of persistent stress hormones hitting the heart. That's the mechanism of dying of a broken heart. Phenomenal. So there's actual biology to speak to what we didn't understand. Yeah. But we all knew knew it was there. Yeah. So um, this was an awesome discussion. I know that your knowledge is not commonly available, you know, when you go to your average sort of MD which is fine, you know, they're, they're doing what they do well. So some people are listening and probably thinking, I need to work with this guy. How do I reach him? So how does somebody actually work with you? Do you do virtual work? Meaning that I know you're not, you're in, you're in Washington state uh, and our listeners are everywhere. So how does somebody actually work with you if they need support? I do virtual consultation. So we, okay. we won't let that be a barrier. Yeah, I have clients I work with all over the country, even several internationally. So that can work. Uh, it's through my website. So michaelturnermd.com. And you can see very clearly a button and we can schedule you for a so-called meet and greet session and work through that. You know, I do a lot of things by Zoom or by phone call. Uh, and then okay. some people, you know, fly in or they're local here in the Pacific Northwest and we can meet up. Another way that people might want to keep in touch, if not directly to see me as a patient, would be through some of the articles that I write. Again, I've had some articles specifically about the COVID spike protein, what it does to your body, right? Specifically about how to clear it. These are the five things as I had gone through before. And that is on Substack, if you're familiar with Substack. But if you look me up on Substack, drturner, d-r-t-u-r-n-e-r.substack.com, you'll see uh, my channel there. And there's a lot of good information that people might be interested in. Okay, so we'll share that with everybody. You had mentioned earlier that article that you had written that we can also share, right? Um, yes. So this is yeah. awesome. Eye-opening discussion. You made something that's such a gray area and people didn't understand. So easy to understand. And we thank you for that because it, it really uh, was actionable. Now we know what to do. 
So this was a great discussion. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you, Kashif. I enjoyed it. I was a school teacher before I went to medical school, actually. So I'm always looking for a chance to explain something and just try to encourage and empower, you know, my clients. And I'm glad to. Now it all makes sense. No, yeah, it makes sense now. Now, yeah. yeah, former. Well, thank former you again. Teacher. Yeah, sure. Amazing. Thank you.